We can turn with me uh, into uh, to the Psalter. You can turn with me to Psalm 3 in the book of Psalms. Uh, we finished Ecclesiastes. We're going to do Jonah in the new year, Jonah and Nahum in the new year in the evening. Uh, but I figured it'd be good to return to the Psalms. And what we'll do is we'll kind of just go in, in, uh, in order. It'll be an ongoing series. We might do another book and come back to it. Uh, so I will skip Psalms we've done in the past. So we're not going to do Psalms 1 and 2, but we'll do Psalm 3 and so on and so forth. And it's good to be uh, in the book of praise for God's people. It's uh, a good reminder for us how we can approach unto God uh, in prayer. So we'll see a shield from enemies in Psalm 3 this evening. So Psalm 3, I'll begin reading at verse 1. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, thank you that you are a help in times of distress and in times of trouble. And we are thankful, O God, we can cling to your promises in those times as well. And thank you, O God, that there is one who sits in the heavens, there's one who reigns supreme, and even though the nations rage and plot vain things, you laugh at those who do such things, O God. For Christ is King, Christ is Lord, the ends of the earth is his possession. He shall break his enemies with a rod of iron, he shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so thank you, O God, for his might, thank you, O God, for his power. We're also thankful, O God, for his graciousness toward wretched sinners like us that we who were once enemies have been reconciled to him through his dying and rising again. And so because of this, O God, we are thankful for the privilege it is to call upon you as our God, to call upon you as our Lord. And please forgive us, O God, for the times we neglect to do this very thing, that we have our help who is near to us day by day, and so often we neglect to call upon you. But we ask, O God, you teach us tonight how we ought to pray to you, how we ought to call upon your name in times of distress. Thank you that you are our shield, you are our glory, that you are our sustainer, and you are with us day by day. So we ask, O God, you be with your saints this night, be pleased to save sinners, and in all things, O God, we pray that you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes has taught us that there are many enigmas in this world. Enigmas are part of life. There's inconsistency that we have to deal with in this fallen, present, evil world. Age. And in that book, we were taught that we must fear God and keep his commandments. But exactly how ought we to cry out to our God in a perplexing time? How is it that we ought to pray to our God in a time of enigma? Well, thankfully, this is where the Psalms help us. When there is something that comes upon us that is distressing, we must pray. When there's something that comes upon us that is difficult, we must sing to our God. And thankfully, there are many types of psalms for the many problems that God's people face. And certainly in Psalms 3, we see quite a conundrum. We do see quite an enigma with that superscript there, when a father has to flee from his son. 
And what makes it even more perplexing is Psalm 3 is on the heels of Psalm 2. There was this triumph. There was this, uh, this, this psalm all about the might and power of the king, all about his reign. And then we have Psalm 3 where the king has to flee from his son. Here the king's son, uh, son has become part of the scoundrels who plot against the Lord's anointed. Very perplexing for anybody as they deal with life and the conundrums of life. Now, the Psalter as a whole is the praise book for the people of God. That's what Psalm means. It means to praise. It's the covenant book for God's people. Uh, and even though it means praise, most of the Psalms are lament, <laughs> crying out to God in a time of complaint, crying out to God in a time of distress, but most of them do turn to some sort of praise to God for who he is and what he does for his people. And as we come to the Psalter, it's good to be reminded that it's not just a bunch of Psalms put together. There is a structure and flow to it. Psalms 1 and 2 give us kind of the overarching purpose of the book. Psalm 1 gives us the purpose, the way to happiness. And Psalm 2 gives us the message, how we find our happiness, namely in David's king, namely in God's king found in that Davidic covenant. And so there is a flow. There are five books, sorry, five books. And book one is called The King's Confidence in the Lord. And so it, it really is, there's a lot of struggles of faith that we see in the opening book of the Psalter. There are struggles that where the psalmist cries out to God uh, because he's going through those struggles. And so Psalm 3 is one of those laments, crying out to God, but it's also a protective psalm, who we can cry out to in our time of lament, where we can find protection in our time of distress. Now, hopefully the problem is very clear. Unexpected adversaries. Would one think that the son would be the one who goes against the Lord's anointed? David really does have real, physical, threatening enemies concerning his kingship. Now, for us, there are enemies of the church, and it may be true that there are enemies who actually want to blow our heads off and kill us and that sort of thing. But there are other enemies we have to face as well. We all still struggle with our own flesh day by day. We still struggle with certainly with the world and we struggle against the devil. And sometimes in whatever circumstance we are in, sometimes we look at that circumstance and can be so overwhelmed by it. We can be so concerned by it. We can be so uh, in despair over that very thing, whatever our plight might be. And so what the psalmist is trying to teach us is we not ought to look at our enemies, but we ought to look to our God. That's where our gaze ought to be in whatever circumstance we endure. And so in Psalm 3, the psalmist relies upon the Lord, his shield, in the face of many enemies. So it's the Lord who is his shield in the face of many enemies. And we'll look at this idea under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see when the Lord is taunted, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we'll see when the Lord shields, verses 3 through 6. And lastly, we'll see when the Lord saves, verses 7 and 8. So when the Lord taunts, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord shields, verses 3 through 6. And then lastly, when the Lord saves. So let's first look at when the Lord is taunted in verses 1 and 2. And notice in verse 1, which is the superscript, in Hebrew, there's nine verses, and that's because the superscript really is verse one. So if you have ever 
been confused. Why does he read the superscript when he tells us to you know, read the call to worship? It's because it's in the Hebrew. So verse one is actually a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. It gives us the historical setting for this very song. And uh, there are uh, 14 total Psalms that have some sort of link to David's life. Well, the first one, right after the purpose, right after the message, is this very perplexing situation. And it is parallel with 2 Samuel 15 through 19, the flight of David from his son, Absalom. Now, what's interesting is David's fleeing is part of the punishment, part of the consequences for his adultery and murder. Remember, David engaged in adultery with Bathsheba, and then to hide that, he killed Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, one of his, was one of his mighty men, one of his closest allies. He killed Uriah, his friend, to cover up his sin. Well, God sees all of it, and he uses Nathan the prophet to challenge him on that very thing. And David repents. David confesses his sin. We see this in Psalm 51. And so David is still dealing with the consequences of what he has done. But there's kind of a kindness that we see in Psalm 3 in light of what David has done, isn't there? So David's life is in shatters because of what he has done. Sometimes we still have to deal with the consequences of our sin. But thankfully, we can call upon a God who forgives us of that sin. And thankfully, we can call upon a God who helps us even in our trials and distresses, even after the sins that we commit. And so David still relies upon his God, even after the sins he's committed. David still relies upon his Lord. And we see this here in Psalm 3. There is a kindness, even in that superscript, even in the situation that David faces. And so it's the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now, Absalom was the son of Ma'aka, 2 Samuel 3, to say that 10 times fast. Uh, a, of a Gesher, you know, she was a Gesherite. Uh, he was a princely one with regal hair. All the girls would have loved him and do, did love him. All the people thought he was very good looking. Uh, he also had a vengeful heart, and he also had a lust for power. He engages in this coup to steal the hearts of men of Israel against David. And that's exactly what he does. And so David must flee in 2 Samuel 15. And so this is then what David says in light of that flight. And notice in verses 1 and 2 of the English, I'll follow the English for us all. Otherwise, it'll get very confusing. Uh, but verses 1 and 2, notice we see enemies who question God. We see this multitude of enemies that increased, O oh Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. This is a real struggle that the Lord's anointed is facing. This is a real problem that King David must deal with. The world is full of sin. The world is full of enigma. The world is full of inconsistency. The world is full of so much sadness. And one of the perplexing things is when his son rises up against him. The men of Israel who love Absalom, increase as well. This parallels what we see in 2 Samuel 15. The people are getting lured in. The people are getting allured by this guy with great hair. They thought he looked great and sounded good. Yeah, let's go with him instead. They really were increasing. And here's another perplexing thing about this whole situation, is it's the men of Israel. It's Israelites who are, have become the enemies of, of the Lord's anointed here. They're going against God, and they're going against God's anointed. 
And notice David brings his troubles to his covenant God, Lord, Yahweh of Israel. Lord, how they have increased. He's bringing the problem to his God. He's bringing his problem to a God who can handle it. Is our God not omnipotent, dear brethren? Is our God not perfection itself? Can he not handle all our problems and all our sorrows and all our sadnesses and all our sins, no matter how uh, dire they might be? He is always the God we can go to in all our distresses, even in a situation where one's child is threatening to kill their own parent. He is the God that we can call upon. Lord, and he brings the problem before his God. Lord, look what's happening. Lord, here's what's happening. They have increased. They have arisen who make trouble against me. Then notice specifically the taunt of the enemies in verse 2. So they multiply, but also notice their taunt. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. It's not so much the sword that he's afraid of. It's not so much his eyes being gouged out that he's afraid of. It's what the enemies are saying about his God. And the enemies would have been like, wow, that's the anointed. He's running away. Things are not looking good. Why should he care about his own God? Why does his God care about him? There is no salvation in his God. That's the language of help there. There is no deliverance. There is no salvation for him in God. They are taunting the Lord and his anointed. They are raging and plotting a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed. What benefit is there in David's God? And again, this is coming from Israelites who followed David's uh, David's half-son. They followed one who, yes, was part Israelite, but also part Geshurite. They were following the Israelites. Full Israelites were following after this one named Absalom. And they were taunting the Lord and his anointed. And so what do we do when enemies taunt and challenge? Well, first of all, enemies taunt and challenge. We must be prepared for that very reality. Again, people are terrible. People hate God. This also happened to David's greater son on that cross. Save yourself and us. Let's see if God will save him. Show us. They taunted the Lord's anointed. They taunted him on that cross. They hated Christ. And if they hate Christ, they're going to hate the people of God as well. When they see the Lord's anointed on that cross, rather than praising, they taunt him, just like David is taunted as well. So there's going to be taunts. There's going to be perplexity. There's going to be relational issues that might arise. We're between families, and families might taunt one another. Unbelieving family member versus believing family member. That happens. Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What he means by a sword is he's going to divide families, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And so where does David go? Where does David go in his time of trial? Well, he goes to his God in prayer. And this squares with the New Testament, doesn't it? Now, maybe you don't have an enemy who's chasing you with a gun or an enemy who's trying to find you, but we still have anxieties in life, don't we? We still have sufferings that we endure. Remember, suffering as in its broad definition is sin and the effects of sin. Persecution is certainly part of that, but it's all the, 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 the problems that we deal with in this fallen, present, 
evil age. And I surmise everybody here can attest that they suffer in one way or another. I surmise that everybody here struggles with anxiety in one way or another. You want to know how I know that? Because Paul gives a command in Philippians 4, don't be anxious. And if you're anxious, you know what he says? Let your requests be heard by God. So brethren, if you struggle with anxiety, what does Paul say? Pray. And if you struggle or suffer, what does James say? Let him pray. Davis says, prayer is the way we slug our way through troubles. To paraphrase Eugene Peterson, trouble triggers prayer. And certainly when enemies taunt, it triggers our prayers to our God. So the Lord is taunted, but also notice that we see that in our prayers, we can be reminded, even as we pray, of what God does for us. And so this is what we'll see in our second point, when the Lord shields verses three through six. So that was when the Lord is taunted. Let's then look secondly when the Lord uh, shields in verses three through six. Now, one thing I should say about that word, selah, most commentators have no idea what that means. And so I'm not going to try and unpack what that means. It probably could mean, uh, it probably was probably used for musical purposes, either a pause or a changing of the tune, but that's about as much as I'm going to say about selah. Uh, so selah, verses three through six, when the Lord shields. So notice in verses three and four, we see the Lord who shields. And notice there's this movement in the psalm. Remember, we change. You know, the beautiful thing about prayer is that God does not change when we pray to him, but he changes us as we pray to him. Sometimes we start out first with that despair, Lord, look at all my enemies. But then hopefully as we're praying, we turn our gaze to him. And so notice he goes from complaint to confidence in verses three through six. Then we'll see his request in verses seven through eight. And there is a lot of, look at my enemies, but you, O Lord, and look what you've done for me. The but you in verse three and the but I in verse five. And so notice what he says in verse three, but you, you, O God, are a shield for me. You are my protector. You're the one who protects me in the battle. You're the one who is with me. Even though I have these enemies that are round about, you are with me now. You block their arrows, you block their blows, you are the one who is near to me. And this is similar language throughout the Psalter, but also we see it in Genesis 15, right before God, uh, God has already entered into that Abrahamic covenant, before God confirms the Abrahamic covenant, what does he say to Abraham? He says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And that's right after Genesis 14. Everyone's like, what's Genesis 14? When I say Genesis 14, I hopefully you know what Genesis 14 is. Just because I say Genesis 14, it might not mean you don't know. Melchizedek. That's when Melchizedek's on the scene. That's when that's the first world war in the Bible. When there's that battle about who is the king overall and all these wars are happening. I am your shield. God is the shield of his people. And David is coming and clinging to that very promise, clinging to what God has said to him. And notice the situation has not changed, at least at this part in the psalm, but he is reminding himself of God's protection. Even though God doesn't always take us out of our circumstances, but he gives us peace in those circumstances. He gives us confidence in him in those difficult circumstances. He is the keeper of his promises, and we must rely upon him who keeps his promises. But you, O Lord, are a shield 
for me. But also notice my glory. Think about for a moment. The king has fled the city. The king who brought rest all around him. The king who had glory, humanly speaking. Now he's got nothing. Where is his glory? Where is his gaze? He noticed his glory does not change, though he loses the glory of the city. Even though he has fled and gone out of the city of David, he still trusts in his God who is his glory, though he has nothing. That ought to be a comfort for us, dear brethren. Do we, if we lose everything in this world, if we lose all our earthly glory, we still have God Almighty who ought to be all our glory. You are my glory. You are my shield, but you are my glory. I have you, even though I am fleeing from my son. And then notice as well, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. In 2 Samuel 15, as David is going out from the city, yes, he can still have confidence, but doesn't change the fact it's still very sad. And he weeps. His head is covered. His head is down. What does it say here? You lifted up my head. That even though I was in despair, you lifted up my head. Even though I was down, you lifted up my head. That is the image that is there. God lifts up those who are in despair. That's usually how prayer starts, doesn't it? You come in, something's gone wrong, something's difficult, and usually in despair. And hopefully as you pray more, we God lifts up our countenance. He changes us. He works in us as we pray to him. So he shields, he is our glory, and he lifts us up. But also notice he hears in verse 4. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I cried to God, and he heard. Do idols hear? Do other gods answer prayers? Do other gods listen? This is the beautiful thing about the one true God as he hears. He says, I I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me. Notice the location from his holy hill, Selah. Even though he is moving away from the city of David, or the city of Jerusalem, he's moving away from where the tabernacle is and where the Ark of the Covenant is. Notice, God still hears him. Isn't that a remarkable thing for an Israelite? The law of them later on will make the tabernacle an idol. But here, David, even though he's going away, I prayed to you and you heard me from your holy hill. He knows that God is everywhere present. He knows that Yahweh is with him. He knows and trusts in the promise of God. This goes back to chapter 2, verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There was that promise to David. There was that promise to David's greater son. And David here trusts in that promise on your holy hill. And so the Messianic kingship as well, when it comes to the Psalter, is important for the people of God to cling to in times of distress. And that Messianic kingship or that Davidic kingship plays a huge role in the Psalms. You get to Psalm 89, Things seem very bleak, don't they? And that's why the psalmist cries out, hey, God, you swore this covenant. Here's what you said to David. But then he's questioning, what about your promises, oh God? You see, sometimes we do that when we're in deep distress and deep despair. 
Sometimes we are wondering where are God's, where is God? Where are his promises? What about David? The people going off into exile. What about David? That's why Isaiah has the servant songs and the stump who comes from the, or the shoot of Jesse that comes up and you know, that the one who shall, shall establish justice and sit on the throne of David. I mean, we're all looking for David to come. God's promises still remain. And so what does David himself do in the midst of his despair? You heard me from your holy hill. Not only the God who hears, but the God who made that promise to David that I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He has confidence in Yahweh's promises. Kidner says his, prom- his trust is not in Absalom's decrees, but the Lord's who will issue from Mount Zion, indeed, have been dispatched from there already to determine David's fortunes. Even though God is dealing with David, even though this is part of the consequences of David's sin, Absalom was not some happy guy before he was turned to do... No, he was a vengeful person. He He had a lust for power, and God will deal with his enemy in a very amusing way but we'll get to that in just a bit but the lord is the shield of his anointed selah but also notice the lord sustains his anointed in verses five and six he says in verse five i lay down and slept i awoke for the lord sustained me sleep is a blessed thing isn't it when we can get it sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by not going to bed early That's our fault. I get that. But sometimes we go to bed early and we don't always get the best sleep, right? Remember during our first year of the pastorate, I think I brought it up for prayer. I was going, went through like a month or two. I was getting like two, three hours a night. I don't know why, but I miss sleep. Then I did certain things. I'm able to sleep once again, but it's not always perfect, right? But sleep is a blessed thing that God gives to us. And it's something we ought not to take for granted. I'm sure many of you struggle with sleep at night. Sometimes perhaps of your fault, but are probably not your fault as well. Many who it's not your fault at all. But sleep is a good thing. And notice, you'd think that as you're fleeing from your enemy, that you're fleeing and worried about your life, that you would have one eye open the whole time, right? You probably wouldn't get the best sleep. You'd have your sword ready to go in case somebody comes. But notice he says, I lay down and slept and I awoke. And notice the reason why for the Lord sustained me. And later on in Psalm 4, verse 8, he says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And this is why Psalm 121 and 127 are so important. In Psalm 127, he gives sleep to his beloved. And in Psalm 121, it says that he who is the keeper of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Isn't that a comforting thing to think, brethren? I think we'd also take for granted the fact that we get up in the morning. (laughs) I mean, the fact that we go to sleep, we haven't died, and we're awake the next day. I mean, that is a blessing for which we ought to thank God. And why is it he sustained me in the night? And the reason he sustains us in the night and the reason we can rest our heads on our pillow each night is because the keeper of Israel or the keeper of the church neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is the one who is and the one who is working. And therefore, we do not need to fear. Therefore, we do not need to be afraid in the daily round. Even when David is fleeing for his life, he can rest his head 
because it was the Lord who sustained him in the night. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Now, this is important because God is providing for him in the ordinary. That gives him confidence for God in the extra, uh, with God in the extraordinary, verse 6. Therefore, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Yes, there are many, like we saw in verses 1 and 2, but David's like, I'm not going to be afraid. The God who kept me at night, the God who made me awake, the God who sustained me is the God who will be with me in the battle as well. He will be near to me, and therefore I will not be afraid, though there be 10,000 men around me, 10,000 people who have surrounded me. The Lord has sustained him in the daily round is the one will be with him in the battle of the day. So God is the shield and God is the sustainer of his people. And thankfully, brethren, we can take comfort in that as well, that the Lord protects his people. Now we have that promise in Hebrews 13 that's based upon Deuteronomy 31. God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Do you cling to that promise, dear brethren, when you're crying at night or going through a dark, deep trial? God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Don't always feel that promise. That's why we, when we don't always feel the promise, we come and pray that promise to him. Lord, you said you've promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Just like David is saying, you heard me on your holy hill and you will be with me. God does hear our cries, dear brethren, and God is the one who sustains us, and therefore we can have our confidence in him. He is our God. He is with us. Davis says, in the face of the threats and ruckus and theological opinions of his enemies, David turns his eyes to his protecting, sufficient, restoring, accessible God. The God-centeredness of his gaze keep him steady while his enemies try to decide what price, what precise level of scum he is. Or perhaps to use McShane, one look to self, 10 looks to Christ. Or one look at your enemy, 25 looks to Christ, right? <laughs> we have a good God we can link, uh, cling to every day who protects us. So that's when the Lord shields Let's then look thirdly and finally when the Lord saves in verses 7 and 8. This is going to make some people squeamish, but just, just go with me for a bit, okay? Verses 7 and 8. Notice, see, we come to the request of salvation in verse 7. Arise, O Lord. What have the enemies been doing? They've been arising. And so what does then David say? You arise, O Lord. And the thing is here, when it comes to salvation, it requires God to arise against his enemies. This is in Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to judgment. You have commanded. You see, God doesn't just sustain us in the midst of our trials. He doesn't just sustain David in the midst of his flight but he sometimes does give victory. Does he not? I'm not being all Pentecostal when I say that. What I mean by that is that God does deliver us from trials. 
we ask God to give us the lesson during those trials, but it's also not wrong to pray to God to deliver us from those trials. And this is a very New Testament way of praying. Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul prays. He asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and pray for, uh, he says, pray for us. In second Thessalonians three, Pray for the word, that it would go forth, but also verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Brethren, we ought to pray for our brethren in chains that they be delivered from their trial, right? Hopefully we do pray that. You know, you know sometimes in the Reformed world, we're just like, well, God might not always deliver us in this world. And that's true. God might not always deliver us in this world from our trial, it's not wrong to pray that very thing. It's good to pray that God give us the strength to endure that trial, but it's also good to pray that God deliver us from that trial, right? That's exactly what he's saying here in verse two. I mean, that's crystal that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Then there's verse three, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. God really is with his people, and God really saves his people, and God can really deliver his people from daily salvations. And so certainly David here is asking that God deliver him from this trial. You arise, O Lord. You save me. That was the taunt of those enemies. They said, there is no salvation. And here he's saying, God, you save me. And he's going to say in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, Kidner says, refuge is not enough. Anything less than victory is an abdication. We also goes on to say, victory is of God. We ask no victories that are not thine. God has said to him, you have set your king. I have set my king on my holy hill. David's away from his holy hill. But God will bring that promise that his king shall be on his holy hill. And brethren, this is the sort of the language we see in Colossians 2 that we saw last week, right? Don't worry about all those heretics out there. Don't worry about those Judaizers and those Greek philosophers. Christ has won the battle. Don't worry about angels and principalities and powers. Christ has disarmed them and made them a public spectacle. And what does he say throughout that section? You are in him. Christ has won. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, and we have defeated them in him. He has given us victory, and he gives us strength in our Christian life as well to help us to be sustained in our trial, but also to give us deliverance from that trial, even from deliverance from sin, dear brethren. God really can deliver us from pet sins. He really can. I don't, do we believe that? that God can do that for us. You struggle with something, not saying you'll never struggle with that again, but God can help you with that remaining sin. We ought to believe that and cling to that day by day and pray to our God who is in whom we have been di died, been buried and raised. He is our salvation. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And this is the part we all don't like. I'm fine with it, but you, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. The cheekbone idea probably refers to some sort of gross 
insult. The teeth aspect has to do with rendering someone speechless. And remember, they were taunting him. And what is he saying? Render them speechless, O my Lord. And eventually, God does render Absalom speechless. Remember, he hangs by his hair and he can't move. And then he's jabbed by Joab. I mean, it's kind of a fitting way for that guy to die. I'm sorry. There seems to be a poetic justice with the way in which he passes. And what we see here in verse 7 is very similar to an imprecation. An imprecation is when one calls upon judgment upon one's enemies. Now, there's a lot of debate. Should we, as Christians, pray imprecatory prayers? Well, it's probably okay, but I'm going to qualify it, okay? So just pay attention for a sec. There are many imprecations, certainly in the Psalms, but there are imprecations in the New Testament as well. We don't like that, but there are. Remember, it's the even though we, we believe it's the same God of salvation, the Old and New Testament, but it's the same God of justice in the Old and the New Testament. And there are three places where we see imprecations. Second Timothy 4. Uh, yeah, Second Timothy 4. This is one of the last things Paul says. I'm going to give my qualification of it in just a second, but I'm just pointing out there are imprecations in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. That's an imprecation. Revelation 6, 9, and 10. The cry of the martyrs from the fifth seal. And they cried with a loud voice, those who'd been slain for the word, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Or, and this is what Godfrey pointed out, come, Lord Jesus, come. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, what's the implication, dear brethren? He's calling certainly for the salvation of his people, but the implication is when he comes, he's going to judge his enemies. You know, it is a, it's the long suffering of God that he delays his coming for the salvation of sinners. You know, we looked at that yesterday in our Saturday study. One of the attributes of God is his goodness. And one way we see his goodness exercises and his long suffering towards this world. His delay brings salvation for wretched sinners like you and I. But come, Lord Jesus, come really is an imprecation. Now, the qualification is we ought to pray for the conversion of our enemies first, right? That's what we ought to pray for. But if not, we ought to pray that God's justice would be seen, right? What we're saying here is this is not some personal vendetta. If someone cuts you off in the middle of the road, you call judgment upon, you know, upon them or your sister steals your Lego or something like that. Oh no, God, bring judgment. That's not what this is for. We're just asking God to show his justice. That's all we're asking for. Yes, we pray for the you know persecutors to be saved, but it's not wrong to pray for the persecutors to be judged by God most high. That is perfectly legitimate. Davis says some get bent out of shape because the enemies are going to need an orthodontist. These people are nervous because this prayer asks God to get violent. Remember the hymn some churches sing. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. 
Shall we pass the hand cream? That's what he said, by the way. Shall we pass the hand cream? Because people don't want to get their hands dirty. They're delicate. That's what his point is. Now, yes, dear brethren, the kingdom of God comes in through the preaching of the word and through forgiveness. But when Christ comes back, he's going to judge his enemies, dear brethren. He's going to judge the enemies of the church. I'm not saying we grab guns and we take vengeance. That's not what I'm saying when we pray these prayers. But we're praying that God's justice would be seen. That is what the imprecations call for. And they are perfectly legitimate to pray. And in fact, it is probably something that many martyrs and many persecuted do pray. And I know there's other sections where this is going to come back up uh, as we go through these Psalms. But it is perfectly okay for to pray against the unrepentant enemies of God in this way. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. So that's the request of salvation. The implication is for him to be saved, the enemies must be struck. Then also notice the assurance of salvation in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing is upon your people. Again, this goes back to the taunt when he says, where is salvation? Well, salvation belongs to the Lord. And God does eventually save David from his son's pursuit. Again, the the hair thing. But also David still mourns over his son as well in 2 Samuel 19. But God does save him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't care what they say. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And notice, the king on Zion is a blessing for his people. On the throne of Zion is a blessing for his people. Verse 8, your blessing is upon your people. You see, the personal grief of David can be sung by the people of God. And, and remember, too, when David has to flee and there's this internal civil war happening, it really is a precarious state, not just for the Lord's anointed, but for the people as well. And so when, the, when there's unity, when there's, when there's peace, it's a blessing for all who are there. And so... Certainly that's involved here. If salvation belongs to the Lord and this coup has ended, then there's hopefully peace again. That's certainly in view here. But also it's meant to be a comfort for all the people of God. Your blessing is upon your people. It's a song about where our blessings flow from in our times of trouble, right? A reminder of where our help comes from in times of trouble, a reminder of the benefits that we have in our God for all that he, uh, because of all that he has done for us. It's not just for the king, but all for those, all for all those who are part of his kingdom. And thankfully, dear brethren, we can be encouraged that the Lord saves, does he not? Now, again, Davis points out the daily salvations. That is, there are many times that God deliver us, delivers us from some trial that we're going through He helps us from some difficult sin, die to that sin, and have it be less and less of a temptation. God helps us, doesn't he, in those areas? And we ought to praise God. Or when we get up in the morning, (laughs) that's a daily salvation, isn't it? That God is with us and helps us day by day. Davis says there is a sense in which Yahweh saves you again and again and again in your troubles and dangers. Maybe some of us are in arrears in the gratitude department if we haven't been remembering this. 
God watches over us day by day, and we ought to praise him and thank him day by day for all his daily salvations. But even more importantly than our daily salvations, dear brethren, is our eternal salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, we see all the people of God praising his name. What do they say? Revelation 7.10. Actually, we'll start Revelation 7.9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is found in Christ, and thankfully we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because we have such a friend as our Lord. And I'll close with that hymn, or a line from that hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. May we do that, dear brethren, in our times of distress, that we can call upon our God who watches over us. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you again for your word and for how you teach us to pray. We confess, oh God, in our distresses, we sometimes do not know what to say. But thank you, oh God, that we can move from our complaints that you hear and you can handle to our confidence in you be to be reminded of those promises of who you are. You are a shield and our glory and uh, the one who lifts our head, the one who sustains us, the one who saves us. Thank you, oh God, that we can call upon you. Thank you for your promises that you give us, uh, that you we've received in your word, and that we can cling to day by day as we walk uh, as your people. And so may we call upon you in our distresses. May we call upon you uh, in our trials and troubles. May we call upon you when the enemies are at the gates. And we pray, oh God, that you would be pleased to save our enemies. We pray, oh God, that we would treat our enemies with love, but we also pray, O oh God, that we would remember vengeance is yours. And we pray, O oh God, that you would bring judgment on your unrepentant, on unrepentant enemies. We know that Christ shall come as a rider in white, ready to make judgment. Christ is making his enemies his footstool. And so again, we pray for the conversion of our enemies. We pray for the conversion of persecutors. But we also pray, O oh God, that we would see your justice as well. So thank you that you are the God of justice, that you are the God of salvation. And we're thankful that those whom you have saved, that there is blessing, there is encouragement, and there is salvation in you. So may this give us comfort and encouragement as we go into the world. Give us strength, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.